The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Michael Bungay-Stanier. Now, Michael is the author of the best-selling book, The Coaching Habit which has sold almost a million copies. He's also part of the Thinkers 50 and has been named number one thought leader in coaching this year. On this show, me and Michael dive into lots of interesting questions about how you measure success, what's the best advice he's ever got, and what you should wear when performing on a podcast. But before we dive into all that, it's good to know actually where Michael started from because it certainly wasn't a straight trajectory to where he is today. I'll tell you a story that had an effect that rippled through my career even now, although it didn't create any immediate action in the moment. So I spent a long time in university. You know, I I studied what they call an arts law degree in Australia. So you do a BA in literature and the same time concurrently you do a law degree, which is an undergraduate degree in Australia. And it's like you do two degrees in the space of one and a half. So it took six years or so to finish those. And then I won a Rhodes Scholarship that took me over to England. So I'm now doing a two-year master's degree in Oxford. So I've now been in university for eight years. Still utterly unclear what good, you know, what I can do because I've got a master's degree in modern literature. You know, James Joyce and Isabella Allende doesn't naturally set me up for anything. And I'd kind of tried to figure some stuff out. So I went and I went to some informational interviews at McKinsey and walked away going, I'd be a disaster at McKinsey. And I would have been, it would have been terrible. I tried to join an advertising agency and I got so far along the process. I was in the last 20 or so in the shortlist, but then I got interviewed by UK's S master who also worked with an advertising agency and he just dissected me in this interview. I was a disaster. I mean, I was an utter disaster. So I didn't get that job either. And I instead came across this uh, nascent company, a company called what if that was an innovation company. And this was in the kind of early mid nineties. So before innovation became a thing, you know, now it's a thing. Everybody's got a it's consultancies everywhere. Everybody's got a point of view. Everybody knows about innovation. At the time, nobody even really knew what innovation was or why we would bother. And I didn't know what it was either, but I'd gone and there was these two guys and they were a bit random and they were eclectic. And I was like, this could be a fun first place to work at. And in many ways, it was brilliant because Matt and Dave, the two founders, their whole philosophy was, look, whatever business as usual is, let's not do that. <laughs> you know, so when they started off, you know, their invoicing system was randomly assigned hieroglyphics. You know, we're not going to put numbers on them because that's the wild and crazy guys we are. So I was like, I was lucky that in that for so many of us, our first job is about knocking the edges off us. So we behave in the capitalistic system. We're like, you got to learn what Absolutely. it means to work nine to five and follow the system and don't break the rules and understand the hierarchy. And I just fell in with a company that 
didn't have a hierarchy and were kind of trying to disrupt that. Now they were a disaster on some other levels, but in many ways that spirit was really helpful. But that's not even the kind of the turning point I was talking about. Here's the turning point. My very first day at work, super exciting. I bought a grown up pair of trousers and a shirt and I was like, okay. And they at the time had an office in Primrose Hill, which is a fairly fancy inner city part of London. It's right near Primrose Hill, a park right near Regent's Park and the zoo that's there. It's where Robert Plant lives. I know that because I lived in Primrose Hill for a while. So you've got kind of, you know, Led Zeppelin lead singer walking around in leather trousers and looking cool. My first day of work, I've got a little bagged lunch that I bought from my home. I was living in Oxford at the time. Because this is these two dudes running this company, there was no onboarding process. They're like, oh, what? You're starting today? Okay. Anyway, lunchtime came and I was like, I'll go out and have lunch. And I sat on Primrose Hill. So I'm sitting there thinking to myself, at last, I'm an adult. You know, this morning I was a boy and now I'm a man. And I'm sitting there eating my sandwich on Primrose Hill and this cute little dog approaches me. And as you can imagine, it's like tiny and it's small and it's like white and it's got little feathered fur. And it's like something out of an anime cartoon. And it walks up to me and it looks super adorable. It's like big brimming brown eyes. And it lifts its leg and it pisses on me. (laughs) I was like, come on. It's like my first day at work and I have been urinated on by this random animal. It's like most people's first day at work. (laughs) (laughs) No, exactly. Exactly. And I'm going to combine it with another story because I was like, okay, this is telling me something. I'm not sure what yet. And then when I left that company, I joined another company. I'm just thinking of first aid disasters. And this new company, and there's like, it's now a consultancy and their management consultancy. And I showed up in my best clothes and they're like, whatever you're wearing, that's not appropriate. You need to go out and buy a suit. And I didn't have a suit at the time. I'm like, oh God, panicking. Go to the stationery cupboard and grab a pen and some post-it notes and, you know, whatever you need. So I go to the stationery cupboard and it's a kind of Ikea setup. And I open the door of the cupboard, which is about head height. And it literally, the whole thing falls off the wall. It's like I have just gone in and I've like, in a rock star way, trashed the stationery cupboard. I'm like, I hardly touched it. And both of those, as I look back now and you're in kind of the myth making of who I am today, there's something about Michael, you're just, unemployable (laughs) you're just (laughs) not that good at working for other people and it is true that over time I got clearer and clearer that you know at my best I'm not that great at working for a boss particularly not that great at working in a traditional hierarchy just by a matter of necessity and survival I need to start my own company and that's what I started 20 years ago and that was a really liberating moment now it was getting fired from my last company I worked with, that was truly the turning point that made me go, okay, well, now's the moment. I've been fired. I've got nothing to go do. Now's the time. But there was something in those other stories that are all like, you know, that saying inspiration is when your past suddenly makes sense. There's all these clues that got to that moment where I'm like, you need to start your own business. Yeah, no, it's great. It's so interesting though, this notion of like limited structure, you know, like one of the best experiences I ever had in a company was actually my last company I worked in before I took the entrepreneurial sort of step. And there was no managers. It made very explicit rules. I remember on the first day I came in, you know, and I was asking like, hey, I'm going to go for lunch. Should I tell anyone? Everyone was like, 
I don't know. <laughs> you can yeah, if you, you want. To like, I need to take a holiday. Who do I tell? Just take it. Right. And those kind of structures, I think, were really interesting. But they really helped me form this ability to like deal with uncertainty, to try things, which are so key right. as you take the entrepreneurial risk. You know, like being comfortable right. with yourself, be comfortable with figuring stuff out. So what have been some of those key bits for you that you've had to both learn and unlearn about yourself as you're doing this 20 years, you have your own business now. And I'm sure it's not obviously not a straight line about how you got to even where you are today. So <laughs> Think of the opposite of a straight line and then twist it up a little bit more. And then you've probably got the pathway to get to here. Yeah. So what are some of your reflections of that, of how you've evolved really over the years? So there have been some lessons that have mostly been hard won. The first is to understand that I'm a great leader and a terrible leader, depending on the person. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the guys that I hang out with a bit is a coach called Marshall Goldsmith. And his whole philosophy around the success of his coaching is it's all about getting the right client. I can be a brilliant coach with the right client and I'm going to be a mediocre coach with the wrong client. And in some ways that is true just about life, which is like, who do you invite into your life? Because here's what I notice: I've got clearer over the years about where I'm best as a leader. I'm great at having people's backs. I'm great with people who take responsibility and accountability. I'm great with people who have just been waiting to move into pastel colored cliches. For people who've been waiting for the wind beneath their wings, I'm that person. I am like the wind beneath their wings. There have been a number of people where I can look at and go, I've given you a sense of autonomy and confidence and freedom that has allowed you to flourish in a way that you wouldn't have found in most other places. And it's been amazing for me to watch these people just do great and just stun themselves and stun me with just who they are and how they run. I mean, literally the woman who is now the CEO of Box of Crayons, so running a, you know, a seven and soon to be eight figure business. I hired her from behind the bar of my local pizzeria four years ago. And she is brilliant. And she has just flourished in this atmosphere. And there's been a number of people where I've been a boss to who don't have quite the same spirit and they haven't served me as well as they might. And I haven't served them as well as I might as a boss. So there's a piece around understanding who you best work with. And that's not to say that every person in your sphere needs to be that person, but in terms of figuring out who influences and nudges and helps shape people's journeys you've got to get the right match between the right people that's been a big learning for me yeah i just think that's a fabulous insight for people like even as you were describing before like there's one level where you're finding the environment that can get the best out of you you know the yeah mckinsey contrasted with your your two <laughs> exactly. your hieroglyphic friends yeah. and also i think as a leader is like what is going to get the best out of you um, and also right. recognize what's not and yeah. fill in those gaps i love that notion of you know, I often talk a lot about collaboration fit, especially when I'm not only find like the right clients to work with, because I'm going to get the best out of them and they're going to get the best out of me. Right. It's a two way street. And I think right. when you find that you do amazing things. And yeah, I think too many people don't accept that, you know, maybe in some respects that they don't 
understand themselves well enough or they feel like they have to do these works because that's what society, that's what the system says they got to do. And in many ways, that's a tough lesson to learn. It is a very hard lesson to say no, because <laughs> that's what we're kind of talk, circling around. And because you're never saying no to a thing or an opportunity, you're saying no to assorted people. And who likes saying no to assorted people? Well, there are some people in this world who love it, but most of us are nice. <laughs> and so we're like, oh, I'd rather not do that. You know, one of my uh, favorite writers is a guy called Austin Cleon. He's in the world of the kind of creativity and his first book is called Steal Like an Artist and it's fantastic. His latest book is called How to Keep Going, I think. And they're beautifully designed and they're visual and he brings this kind of each book is based on 10 core principles and then he illustrates and writes about them and full of great quotes and he talks about the power of no <laughs> and he quotes somebody and i can't remember exactly who it is who'd written the best i can't do this letter and i can't remember who said it but the quote i do remember and it says this dear barry i must decline for secret reasons yours sincerely michael <laughs> And when you ask me what have I learned around this journey, part of what I've learned is the more courageous I can be about what I say no to and the fewer things that I say yes to, the more likely it is that I'm going to make a difference in the world. And I find that very hard because I am wired to be shiny object dude and I've got a great imagination and I'm like, oh, oh, how about this? How about this? How about this? Uh, to the extent that my new venture, MBS.Works, Ainsley, the woman I'm working with, we've got a really explicit agreement that she gets to decide what we launch and when. <laughs> and also that her default answer must be no. That's it. Every time I go, hey, how about we? Her default answer has to be no. Because we can't have two yes men in this team. And I'm a yes man. <laughs> I'm like, I could do this. I could do this. I could do this. I've got that type of brain. And it just doesn't serve the bigger game that you're looking to play. Yeah, now, I think this is great, right? Because I think when I read The Coaching Habit, you know, one of the things that really stood out for me, the question of if you're going to say yes to something, mm -hmm. that means you've got to say, what are you saying no to? Right. And it's such a great framing, you know, because you see this in companies. Everybody's always adding, adding more, doing more work. Sure. We're, we're forced in companies to take on more things where we're context exactly. switching and quality goes down. Yeah, And exactly. I think, you know, the power of no, of committing to the path you want to take at the expense of other things. Like sometimes you have to let people down and right. people are afraid to do that. And you can do it nicely, like your secret. <laughs> and I can't explain why. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. For secret reasons. I'm sorry. Candid as well. Yeah, yeah. But I think the power of no, if anything, it's one thing I've learned where there is opportunity everywhere. We're lucky we can seek it out. It can find us. But I think yeah. there's a huge discipline and skill in being able to say no. Yeah. Well, part of it's that opportunity cost, which is so hidden because it's something in the future. So you don't feel it so much now. So you go, well, what harm could it be doing to say yes now? And particularly if you're saying yes to a commitment that's in the future, it doesn't even feel real. Like there've been times when, you know, I show up and I've got something in my calendar. I'm like, what the hell? Why is this? Well, who said yes to this? And it's like, you know what? Past Michael said yes to this. 
there's this great book that I'm reading at the moment. It's called The Optimist Telescope by a Boston, she writes for the Boston Globe, uh, Bina Van Katraman is her name. Anyway, she's got this great, you know how at the start of books, you always put a quote by somebody fancy and learned just to kind of anchor the book and share yeah. the philosophy. Well, she's got two quotes. She's got a quote from James Baldwin, the great kind of American agitator and philosopher. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So you're like, okay, yeah. Everybody nods and goes, yeah, that's sensible, yeah. But then the second quote is the one I love, and this is from somebody you'll have heard of called Homer Simpson. <laughs> and he goes, that's a problem for future Homer. Man, I don't envy that guy. And so often our yeses, we're like, yeah, future Michael has to sort out that yes. I don't envy him at all. And then when you come to it, you're like, God damn it, past Michael, what the hell were you thinking? And I'm like, okay, you've got to provide that focus. But I'd say there's a counterbalance to that, which is, this is a kind of another thing that I've been trying to learn and I still haven't figured it out, but it's kind of on the learning edge, which is to figure out what you measure as success. Because one of the ways you try often to create focus is to create metrics that stand in for focus. And of course, what happens is you end up with a smorgasbord of metrics that not only are they kind of largely irrelevant because you're like, you don't do anything with them. You just notice them, but it doesn't matter if they go up or they go down or they stay the same or the color changes. You don't actually change anything you do. So what's the point? Right. But there's that phenomena where the metric becomes the target and you do anything to hit the target, including what kind of unintended consequences of bad behavior. You're like, okay, you know, the classic story is, I'll get the details wrong, but the, the metaphor works. You know, British archaeologists in the 1800s paid Egyptians close to the diggings where they were digging for fragments of dinosaur bones. So what people were doing was taking whole dinosaur bones and breaking them into bits and pieces so they'd get more money from that. And it's a classic wrong metric. It became the target and actually destroyed the bigger win that you're actually looking for, which is like, I'd rather have a whole dinosaur bone. All the time. Yeah. One of my favorite bad behavior from a metric, this team, they were incentivized. They got an extra bonus every time they completed a vehicle on their shift. Mm -hmm. And the company I was working with, the team were like literally, I think they were about two hours out from their shift. And they reckon they had about three hours to finish the vehicle off. Yeah. So instead of trying to finish it off, what they did is they went about trying to dismantle the vehicle <laughs> enough and literally hide it. <laughs> That's perfect. So when they could come back, um, they could actually finish it and, and get the bonus for completing right. it. There's kind of like, this vehicle is 98.3% finished. So we can finish the first vehicle in six minutes on the next shift and then we'll get the bonus next shift round. Yeah. The vehicle was a mining JCB that carried like 50 tons gravel around it for a very, yeah. very well known. <laughs> That's funny. The other story I've heard around that is the British in India trying to eradicate poisonous snakes. So they would pay Indians for every dead snake that they bought. So the Indians started breeding snakes. <laughs> and then when the British found out about it, they're like, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. At which stage, the Indians released all the snakes they'd been breeding into the wild. So actually you increased the number of snakes. <laughs> like, oh man. Yeah. Unintended metrics are like, be very careful about what you measure. 
how do you help yourself find those like even in our business now it's an interesting type of world we're in right like you're a writer you've got innovation consultancy like what kind of things matter to help you calibrate what you say yes to and no to yeah it's a very good question and i don't have a great answer to it because i get seduced into all this stuff that other people get seduced into which is like how many followers do i have (laughs) and i'm like so like at the moment there's this random thing that's happening on linkedin on linkedin you can have both people who are connections and followers and it's utterly unclear to me what the difference is or how you become a follower. But, but it I sounds that, good. It sounds I know, like exactly. Exactly. Them. It sounds good. It sounds like I might be an important person if I have a lot of followers. Anyway, I have, I don't know, let's say 25,000 connections, of which 24,500, I'm pretty sure, are recruiters because I don't know who they are <laughs> and I don't know why they're connected to me. But so it goes. They still can't hire you. They're trying. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But for this week, my follow account in LinkedIn is growing in a crazy way. Like it's growing at about 3,000 a day. I know. Now, first of all, utterly unclear why that's happening. So it's not like I'm actually doing anything. I'm utterly unclear the value of these followers and why I would care about them. I'm utterly unclear about how to engage them and how I would connect with them or monetize them or do anything with them. And yet I'm absolutely obsessed about this number, which keeps going up. So I'm like, ah, come on, Michael, you know better than these vanity metrics. There's one way I think about this, which is I keep going, what's the bigger game that I'm trying to play? And this is now slightly dated language for me. And it's slightly inappropriate because we're in the middle of a pandemic when we're having this conversation. But for many years, I used to say, look, my goal is to infect a billion people with the possibility virus. Meaning I want people to take responsibility for their own freedom by seeing the choices that they have and being courageous about the choices that they make. Mm. So that's helpful for me for a number of reasons. One is it's a billion people. So that's a lot. So it's like be bold rather than not. Yeah. And the virus metaphor, which of course is like a bit weird now, but it worked for me then because it meant that it was about me getting out of the way and trying to create stuff that spread by word of mouth and by reputation. And it said to me, look, if somebody comes across like the seven questions that are in the coaching habit book and they don't know that it's from the book and they haven't bought the book and they've never heard of me, is that okay? And I'm like, that's actually great because for me, if somebody is like more curious because they've got better questions because they've somehow found them, then that's a win for me. And then I go, so of all the stuff I could be doing, what feels like it would move me closest to a billion people. And I try and make project decisions based on that. What feels like it would have the most impact in this world. And then I go for it. And a writer called Tim Harford He's a British guy, writes for the Financial Times. His first book was called The Undercover Economist. He's brilliant, funny, does great podcasts as well, and uh, great TED Talks. And on one of his TED Talks, he talked about the power of slow motion multitasking, which is, he goes, okay, I've got four or five projects on the go at once. And when I'm done, when I'm a bit stuck with one, I move to the next. And there's a cross-fertilization that happens. 
And so I'm like, okay, three to five projects, cross-fertilization, my best guess is then moving me towards infecting a billion people with the possibility virus. That's my best guess. And then yeah, you go great. for it. So with the coaching habit book, which is, you know, four years old now, when I was trying to launch it, I was like, how many copies would I like to sell? And in the end, I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> because yeah. nobody knows. Book publishers can't guess how many copies books sell. Everybody's just making stuff up. Absolutely, so I'm like, yeah. let it go. What I said is, look, the metric I would like is for this to be considered a classic. I want it to be considered a classic. And the way that I would know that it was a classic is if it had a thousand reviews on Amazon. So I'm like, that's what I'm going to go for. Thousand reviews on Amazon. And that then sets up a series of actions for me to take to hit a number, which is a stand-in for a bigger, actually more elusive win. Yeah. Like, it's nice to hear you talk through your system. You know, I think people often wonder, like, how do we create success? Is it just, is it serendipitous? Is it intentional? And, you know, so much of what I'm, I spend time and talk to people about what helps them get there is the systems that they design, whether it's they describe big outcomes or thinking big aspirations yep. that they have and start small and start making the steps towards it. Like a thousand reviews is a small step relative to a billion that you're trying to get to, but right. it helps you start to calibrate. Like, what will I choose to do? What will I not choose to do? What action right, exactly. should I take? What action should I not take? You know, and I think, you know, we've had lots of really interesting folks on the show, like, Gibson Biddle comes to mind. He's the chief product officer for Netflix to start to grow the company, you know, and like Gib lives by metrics. Every time he does a talk, he sends out a survey straight after his talk to get an NPS score so he can make it better. Even if he's doing two talks in a day, he does right. three surveys so he gets better. He's just a fanatic at this. And when people start to see that there are intentionality about what people are doing, you know, that, that's learnable, actually. That's right. stuff that they can recognize and say, well, what is my big aspiration? What's yeah. the thing I really... And telling a story helps you find the metric. No one sits there and just jumps straight away. This is the magic metric. It's You're envisioning the success. And you'll hear of these sort of leading indicator behaviors you're talking about in your story. And, and that's a great way to navigate, you yeah. know, to find what success might be for you even if you don't know the metrics to start with. And that's a really powerful system in itself too. I also love that you use the phrase intentionality and serendipity. And I was like, yeah, it's both of those. <laughs> There's a way that intentionality is what allows serendipity to arrive, which is you've got yourself in a position where something interesting shows up and you've got yourself attuned so you notice when something shows up that you can capitalize on. Because you know, if you look at the success of the coaching habit, you have to put a lot of it down actually to luck. Because I reckon with intentionality, if you work really hard, you can sell somewhere between 10 and 100,000 copies of a book. If you hustle and market and shake hands and kiss babies and do a whole bunch of stuff, 10 to 100,000. Anything over 100,000 copies, you've somehow got a little dash of fairy dust that is kind of the wind beneath your wings to go back to that thing again, to get lucky around it. And Coaching Habits sold 800,000 copies. So it's just got a momentum all of its own and a magic all of its own, which is beyond what I can replicate again, annoyingly enough. 
But um, <laughs> I love that. It's so <laughs> funny you share that. You know, I think, like you say, so many times it is maybe about timing, but you're also putting yourself in the position for that timing to right. strike. And, you know, here we are, you are doing that again, right? You are still continuing to create great content. And the advice trap, again, is another really interesting sort of step in another direction. So I have to ask you, like, what is the best bit of advice you were ever given? I mean, it's interesting. It's such a good question. I've got like three answers. And they're right, I, lo- <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so one was that tells the story of, of a throwaway statement. Like I'm 14, my Latin teacher, Peter Lennox, goes, so Michael, what are you going to do when you finish high school? And I'm like, what do you mean? I haven't even thought, what? <laughs> we finish high school? <laughs> I, didn't I, hadn't, I hadn't gotten onto that. And my dad is English. My dad actually grew up in Oxford and went to Oxford, in part because he was a local boy. I said to Peter Lennox, I said, so I think I'd like to go to Oxford University. And he's like, huh, well, you'll need to be a Rhodes Scholar for that. And I was like, noted, I'll become a Rhodes Scholar. And it actually turned out that I became a Rhodes there Scholar. So there's this moment of like, and if I followed up with Peter Lennox, he'd have absolutely no memory of that moment at all, but yeah, yeah. key moment for me. Yeah, nice. So you could definitely say that that has been the piece of advice that has utterly changed my life because blah, 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 I met my wife, blah, 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 blah. There's no way I'd be living this life if that statement hadn't been made. But the one that's kind of resonated more deeply at a kind of being level was just my first boss in that company with the dog. At one stage, I can't even remember the context. And he just looked at me and went, Michael, you are a force for good. And that was a very powerful moment of being seen and recognized in a way that I hadn't even seen and recognized myself. You know, just being called for who I was in that moment, but also the potential I had and something that spoke to an essential quality of who I am in the world. And I still think about that. And again, I bet you if I went and asked Dave about that, he's like, I don't remember saying that to you. And if I did, I was probably lying because I don't see that about you at all. But it, <laughs> it made a big difference. And then the third piece is just my friend Anton, who gave me the focus advice. He's like, for God's sake, focus. And I'm like, no, I'm a free spirit, man. Don't pin me down. But that has also resonated. And you know, with so much of the stuff I do, I'm like, how do you find the focal point that allows you to play, but also creates the boundaries in which you play so that there's a coherence to the stuff that you do? Yeah, that was great. You know, I think that notion of sometimes the words people say to us, they have a huge impact on us. And often people don't even notice them. It's, it's right. such a truism for me. You know, I see that so much. And I love this idea, though, also of like helping you feel seen. Like, I think so much of our work is we're so busy, we're under pressure, like we have anxieties, we're, we're not, do we believe in ourselves? Like entrepreneurialism is a classic example of how am I going to make this work? Do I have the right character? Yeah. Am I, what am I missing? And so many subtle little moments that are just a nudge to encourage you to keep going or to see a blind spot, I think is yep. just so powerful. And again, it's a system that people I think need to have in place. And many people forget to put in place is who gives you some feedback, who helps you be aware of your blind spots. Yeah. Like, Cause if you put yourself in the situation to find your blind spots, you're going to get better, but it's exactly. scary. 
it's scary it, to do it. It is. But it also says to everybody listening, which is like one of the most powerful things you can do is be somebody who utters the words. And, you know, there's that kind of those three levels of feedback you can give somebody. You can say to like, Barry, you're great. Barry will nod his head and it won't honestly resonate that much. Mm. But if I say, Barry, you're great because you did this, you just ran a really amazing podcast interview that will strike a chord that will mean something to him and that will mean something. But if I go, Barry, here's what I appreciate about you, which is like your ability to meet the person where they are and to engage in ideas deeply and to make it easy to be a brilliant guest on your show. That's a deeper level of appreciation. It's speaking to the beingness of the man rather than the doingness, rather than the kind of generic whatever quality of him. It is an invitation. It's a courageous act because it's a kind of act of vulnerability to offer it up and to put it into the conversation, but to speak to somebody's inherent qualities as to how you see them and how you experience them is a very powerful act of leadership, I think. Absolutely, right? And if anything, even when you're sharing those moments there, the, the question I'm encouraged to ask is, how could I get better? You know, like, thank you. What's the next step I could take to make things right. like one little thing better? Putting some clothes on. I mean, we're doing this video thing live, and the fact that you're naked is a little disconcerting, <laughs> but it's okay. I'm riding the wave. I had the best moment today. My wife sent me this link, and she goes, it's over. And I was like, what do you mean? And she <laughs> sent me this link on CNN of a news broadcaster who actually did the news in a full suit but had no pants on. And she's like, that's it. Nobody can work remotely like this ever again. <laughs> exactly. I uh, love it. So looking ahead there, Michael, like what are some of the things that are exciting you? Like what's lighting you up? And you're obviously focused on a billion people, but what's really getting you going at the moment? Yeah. Well, there's some stuff I'm doing and there's stuff I'm not doing. So I've just done my own podcast. We're talking about it before you hit the record button around, it's called, we will get through this. So it's loosely based around this idea of resilience and it's talking to interesting people about how you build resilience at a personal level, at a team level, at an organizational level. So, you know, today I interviewed the guy who's the executive director of the long now foundation, which you might know because you're based in San Francisco, like they are, which are, you know, they're like, we promote long-term thinking and responsibility, and we think in 10,000-year blocks. Civilization's been kind of going for about 10,000 years ever since we invented agriculture, and wouldn't it be good if we went for another 10,000 years? So what does that mean? Like building a 10,000-year clock in West Texas at the moment. It's amazing. So yeah, it's that's amazing. kind of a cool project just because... I like talking to interesting people. So I like I've found an excuse to just widen the circle of my knowledge and the, my contacts and my colleagues. But, you know, since giving up the reins at Box of Crayons and handing the leadership to Shannon and the team there, I'm trying to figure out what the next phase of my life is and how I serve next. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm old enough and I've got enough of a track record that I could whip something up pretty quickly. You know, it's like, here's what I do and here's how I do it. And I'm trying to have the discipline to undercommit and underfill my calendar and under say yes to stuff so that there's space just for me to marinate and see what emerges and to 
have an, a balance of more stuff that's incoming rather than outgoing so that I can get a better sense of who I want to be for the next phase of whatever's next for me. So it's so really kind of, yeah, yeah. It's, somebody put it as kind of deliberate meandering. And I like that, you know, it's like meander with a sense of purpose, but not too much sense of purpose. What I enjoy about that is like people often forget that thinking is also an activity, <laughs> right? You know, and we fill our calendars with the 40 plus hours and every slot is back to back. And so I think putting a few slots for thinking in there is not a bad idea. One of my favorite things to do and was always to try and put thinking time into. It's a privilege to meet so many interesting people. And there's so right. many, like even you've shared references, ideas and thoughts. And, you know, like there's a month's worth of insight for people to go and research there. And yet we still fall into the easy clickbait material that is freely available on the internet, the three <laughs> steps to be a Fortune 500 CEO. You just have to <laughs> brush your teeth at 437 That's actually quite a good article. I like that one. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, like, I'm trying to read, I'm committed to reading at least a chapter a day. And so when I get up in the morning, I sit and grab a coffee and I go and I hide away from my gadgets and I read at least a chapter, often more. And I'm loving that new discipline of new stuff coming in. I mean, I was showing you that your book is one of the books in my stack for the month around stuff that I'm reading. So, you know, I've been dipping into Unlearn amongst other books. Well, thank you. And I really appreciate that. And it's been real fun to hear lots of your great, fascinating stories and what you're working on and thinking about ahead. And, you know, I think they're both great books that you've contributed. And I'm sure there's going to be even more you're going to continue to contribute. So, Thank you for being with us on the show today. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Barry.